The question before us to start this morning is, what is the church to be? What is the church to be? Therefore, what is the church to do? It's always a good question to be asking because it's something the church is always struggling with. Throughout history, the church has struggled with identity. What should we do? What should we do next? Who are we? What really drives us? Uh, We know it's relevant today because the church, by and large, different local churches do all different kinds of things and try different kinds of things. And if this doesn't work to accomplish what we think we're supposed to accomplish, just let's do something else. And reinventing ourselves. We hear people talking about um, reinventing church, reimagining church, uh, rethinking how we do church. So we do struggle with this. But in a very real sense, we shouldn't struggle with it. We shouldn't have a continuous um, identity crisis. Sure, it's good to stop and step back and say, what are, we, what are we doing? What's our purpose? What are we called to do? It's great to ask the question, but we should always be able to find the answer in the New Testament in a book like Titus. So we're studying Titus right now. We've just started. If you have a Bible, you can join me in Titus. But we could be looking at Titus. We could be looking at 1 Corinthians. We could be looking at 2 Corinthians. We could be looking at 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. We see it really all over the place, what the church is called to be, what the church is called to do. Um, You get the idea that it's easy for us to drift. uh, And so it's repeated again and again and again. And Titus is super helpful, reminding us through Titus, through the Apostle Paul, who's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, so ultimately from Christ, what the church is about, what the church is doing. And so I love books like this because I'm, I'm prone to wonder, as the song says, as we would be as a church, and it's refreshing. It helps us to reorient. It helps us to be all the more committed to what we're, we're called to be about and what we're called to be as a church and not lose focus. So far, what we've seen in the opening verses of Titus, is Paul explaining how God, in eternity past, purposed to save sinners. Wow. And then the Apostle Paul's response to that is, he is going to do everything that he does for the sake of those whom God has purposed to save. And so he says the amazing thing that he says in the early verses, that he does everything he does for the sake of the elect. So here's this God who's chosen before the foundation of the world, which is amazing. And Paul's response to that as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is, I'm going to do everything I do in the ministry God has given to me, entrusted to me, for the sake of those who would come to believe for the sake of those God has chosen. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the good news to every man, every woman, every child, no matter what their background is, no matter what they know or don't know. That's my ministry. That's what I do. So we're already seeing what his purpose is, what his calling is, if you will. And then... He's instructing Titus as a pastor. We're going to see to essentially do the same thing. And as a pastor leading a church so that the church does the same thing. Who are they? What are they supposed to do? They're they're, they're to hold forth Christ. 
in the work of Christ, the gospel, they're, they're, they're to, to be proclaiming it, to be promoting it. And to do that also in an age where, where sin is a problem and sinners are a problem, you've got to protect it. So we're, we're promoting the gospel, but at the same time we're protecting the gospel. Really, we're, we're, we're a gospel place. We're a gospel ministry. Proclaiming Christ, protecting the gospel so that we have something to proclaim so that those that God has chosen will hear and come to believe and become Christians. So that's what we saw last time. And now we're going to move into the leadership aspect. If this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to be about, then we, we, we need people to be able to lead in this effort because maybe not everybody will be on board. And we see in Titus, not everyone is on board. Inside the church, Paul knows that's going to happen, and outside of the church. And so he, Paul, the apostle, is telling Titus, here, here's what leaders need to be like. Here's what they need to look like. Here's what they need to do. And so let's go ahead and read the verses we'll look at this morning. So we'll look at verses 5 to 9. Let's read all of those verses. And, and do notice, especially at the end where he's driving. So it says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Here's kind of the why. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and healthy doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. I wanted to highlight for you, he, he's driving somewhere. That last verse really helps us to understand what the church's calling is and also the pastor's calling and the leader's calling. What are we doing? We're, 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 this, we're this gospel entity, gospel promoting, gospel defending, this, this sound word, this gospel word, this healthy word. That, that's who we are. And so that's why leadership is important. So let's not take those verses about leadership and, and, and make them ends in and of themselves. The reason we need to have these qualified leaders leading the rest of us in this pursuit is because this is the kind of person, the kind of people we'll need to have if we're going to stay on target, if we're going to stay disciplined, if we're going to stay focused. So keep it in the, in the context of the whole, if you would. Ready? Don't need an outline this morning. I guess I could have numbered the qualifications and it would have looked more like I did my job today. But I think an outline would just get in the way. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the qualifications. Um, the mistake tends to be one of two things. I either say, um, these are just for the leaders and no one pays attention. Right? Or the tendency is more likely that I say all of this applies to all of us and so then it won't apply to leaders at all. I'm going to go for a tweener, okay? <laughs> so, the, 
He's describing godly character. These are things we would all want to pursue. But please allow me to be able to, to, to preach it like it was intended. Uh, th- this is for leaders. Yes, we can all learn from leaders. But let's have it be for leaders. And so the rest of us can pray for leaders. The rest of us can, can look for leaders to be like that, expect leaders to be like that. The other tendency, one way or the other, is, oh, these are the sinlessly perfect people. You have really bad theology if you have anyone who's sinlessly perfect on planet Earth other than Jesus. We'll talk about that perhaps. But we don't want to go the other direction and say, that's no big deal. It actually is a big deal. So with that in mind, let's begin looking closer at the verses and hopefully with a prayerful spirit that God might use us to be a gospel-promoting, gospel-defending local church and that he might do it in a lot of other places too. This is why I left you in Crete. I remember I would be Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so he has the authority of Jesus. This is why I, an apostle, left you in Crete. It's a bad place, wrong side of the tracks. So that you, whenever I make a train reference, I have to look at the deacon in the church who works for the railroad. Um, Sorry. Um, This is why I left you in Crete, the bad place. At least I didn't say Council Bluffs. I mean, right? (laughs) This is why (laughs) my wife is from Council Bluffs, so. (laughs) See? (laughs) I'm in so much trouble. This is why I, sorry, I apologize. This is why I, the Apostle Paul, left you in Crete, the place no one would want to be from, right? Or go to, or pastor. So that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I, with full apostolic authority. I want you, with my authority, and I'm under the authority of Jesus, to appoint You want to know how to order the church? Do you know how to order the church in a way that's transcultural? This would work in Crete and this would work at Ephesus because in in essence that's what Paul does in both places. Totally different kinds of places, different kinds of educations and all that kind of stuff. With apostolic authority, I'm going to tell you how to order the church. And it has to do with appointing these leaders who are going to be these kinds of men. So that, that would help us to see, oh, that, that would apply to us as well. Now the qualifications. If anyone, let's at least see there that it's super broad. Sometimes we get accused of being too narrow. No, the Bible is super inclusive. Where it should be. If anyone, doesn't matter Education, background, culture, all of those kinds of things. Jew-Gentile, in this case. If anyone, okay? Church is pretty young back then, too. It's kind of interesting. Church made up of all nations. If anyone is above reproach, that's what we're looking for. That's That's the big umbrella qualification. In a sense, he could just stop there. Everything else is elaborating on that, okay? So if someone makes an accusation that someone has ungodly character, the accusation needs to, you know, slide off. 
No, actually, they're a person of godly character. They're above reproach. They're irreproachable. Again, sinless perfection, it can't be that. 1 John chapter 3 tells us that when we see Christ, we'll be made like Him. Okay? No one is glorified this side of seeing Christ at His return. So everyone struggles with sin. And yet, we have to know that there's to be evidence of the, the, the Spirit's fruit. There's godliness. There is a uniqueness here. Above reproach. That's what we're looking for. And then he starts explaining what he means. So let's go ahead and see. The husband of one wife. As some of your margins might say in your Bibles, literally one woman man. He's committed to his wife, is the idea. The way God would define commitment. There are plenty of people who've only been married one time who are not one woman men. Okay? It's not just enough to be married. It's not just enough to be married one time. That's not what he's getting at. You're committed to your wife. The way God would define commitment. There's a good relationship here. And he's going to go on to explain this has to do with leading. So there's devotion there to the wife, as the Lord would specify. And his children are believers. Or as some of your translations say, or your marginal notes say, in light of the Greek text, are faithful. could go either way. Children are believers or children are faithful. In light of 1 Timothy 3, I think faithful would be the complement to it. Because in 1 Timothy 3, he for sure doesn't say believers. He describes them as being under control, respecting the authority of the Father. In fact, he goes on to define, he's talking about behavior. His children are believers or faithful. Well, he's talking about faithfulness when he describes behavior and not open to the charge of debauchery or being out of control or insubordination. In other words, disobedience. Those are behavioral characteristics which would fit the faithful idea that they're, they're under control in the home. And First Timothy is important here because... It's talking about whether or not that dad can control his children. Whether or not that dad can lead in the home. Because it's argued like this. If he can lead in the home, that's good because he's going to have to lead in the church. If he can't lead in the home and control his children and show proper respect and love to his wife, then, then it would never work in the church. It's like the, it's like the testing ground, if you will. So it says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So let's let Scripture interpret Scripture and say, oh, that's really what he's getting at. Here's why, verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, what does home life look like? That's what he's getting at. Does he look like a leader in his home? Is there responsiveness to the children who are in his home? To his wife? 
like other texts of Scripture, be careful that you don't isolate this. Right? I need to be an elder and my kids need to be submissive. Heavy hand of the law. Right? Well, let's make sure we look at Ephesians chapter 6. That yes, you are to lead your children if you have children. But not in such a crushing way so as to provoke provoke them to anger. To frustration. Ah, I can't do this. So I just freak out. It's called for some kind of Holy Spirit-led, balanced... I've got to lead and I've got to be in charge and they've got to be submissive. And yet I've got to love them and be kind to them. Sort of like God is with us. I'll confess to you that, you know, a lot, I had all this stuff figured out, by the way, when I was a brand new Christian, when I wasn't married, and I didn't have kids. I like to tell newlyweds, quick, write a book on parenting. Right? Before you have kids. Because you just think it's the recipe. And if as long as I do this and this and this and this, and it's going to turn out like this. It's not how it is. Doesn't take away from the significance of all of this. But we're, we're, we're needing biblical balance and expectation. What we're looking for is, can that man lead perfectly? No. But can that man lead without any crises? No. Can that man lead in a fallen, broken world and a fallen, broken family? That's what we're looking for. Because it's going to be a fallen and broken church that has to stay on target and on task. So then it says... For an overseer, so that's a synonym for elder, for an over, which is a synonym for pastor, looking at my boys because they're taking notes. Boy, they're going to be in trouble if they don't take good notes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> an elder is an overseer, is a pastor, talking about the same people. Thank you for letting me do that. Notice it says, as God's steward, so we're back to that entrusted idea from verse 3 that Paul talked about. Steward, it's not yours. You're a manager. It's not your church. It doesn't belong to you, so you can't define what the new purpose is. God's steward must be above reproach. Just reiterating what he's saying, but I really like the, 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 the tenor of this and the, the the reminder, Paul talked about being entrusted with something. See, it's not his. So he's got to be careful with it. It's not up to him to be creative. We talked about that last week. And now he's telling Titus to, do the, to be just like him. It's entrusted. Then verse 7 says, look there with me if you would. He must not be arrogant, acting like he's better than other people. Or quick-tempered, which is what it sounds like. 
one Greek scholar said, inclined to anger. It's a natural kind of bent. I think it's important that we see that for what it says because it's not saying or indicating and he never gets angry. I just remind you that Jesus was one who got angry. Read Matthew chapter 21. There's a place for anger, but the, but the person who's leading shouldn't be naturally inclined to anger. It's not what comes as a second you know, nature. But there's going to be a place for it. Maybe we'll talk more about that in just a little while. Or maybe we should talk about it right now, because that's what my notes say. It's sort of like, don't let the sun go down in your anger. But there's a place for what we call righteous indignation. I hope the elders of Omaha Bible Church get mad about sin, about sin that, in their own life, but about sin that hurts the church. I hope you get mad and have self-controlled anger at times. When you say, that's wrong. I can't believe that person is saying that. I can't believe the person is saying that about Christianity. That's not true. Say, I should make you mad. If you're for Christ and his gospel and what it really is, and someone says this is the gospel and it's the opposite or different, you say, that's, not, that's wrong. That makes me mad. Not quick-tempered. But there's a place for that. I do have an illustration written down, but I'm not going to use it. Because I'm going to use self-control. Okay, next. <laughs> Verse 7 goes on to say, Or a drunkard, which is what you think it is. Or a drunkard. Or violent. Some have used a synonym, bully, to try to explain the meaning. Not violent. Or greedy for gain whether it be money or power or prestige, because you're going to be in a leadership position, and so it shouldn't be somebody who's, who's looking to be the, 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 the big shot. Now, application-wise, or sorting this out a little bit wise, think about why this is so important that a leader of a gospel church, which, which is a redundancy helping to lead other people to stay on target, on focus, on task, on purpose. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we're about. We're going to keep playing the one string of the one, one string guitar. This is our message to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is who we are. We're not going to budge. We're going to preach this. We're going to tell people who don't preach this that they're wrong. Oh. You see why it's important that we see these are character qualifications because they are going to be misunderstood. Right? It is going to sound like we are bullies sometimes. It's going to sound like we are prone to anger sometimes. If you would, think about this. Arrogant or quick-tempered. If there's objective truth... 
Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Bodily resurrection. They touched him. They saw him. If somebody says otherwise, what are you going to say to them? You're wrong. And what you're saying doesn't qualify as Christianity. You're going to sound arrogant. And if you're angry about it, which you should be, you're going to sound like you're quick-tempered. So I love it what, what the Spirit of God is doing through the Apostle Paul, making sure this is who this person is, this is who these people are who are going to lead. It doesn't come naturally to them. So when it does happen, it's by necessity. So with that in mind, we've got in verse 1, the truth. If you have the truth, you're going to have error and you're going to expose it. Not only that, in verse 2, eternal life promised in eternity past. We should be a church with leaders who believes that God promised eternal life in eternity past. And you're going to be accused, therefore, of being arrogant for believing anything like that. Who came up with that? So there's another kind of example. How about verse 3, preaching. Preaching isn't sharing. Preaching is preaching. Thus saith the Lord. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. You may know that you have eternal life. And on it goes. Preaching. You are a sinner. Everyone is. You deserve condemnation. Everyone does. We we were called to preach these things. Sounds pretty arrogant. If people say that there's no such thing as sin, I'm going to say that's so wrong. That doesn't qualify as Christian. Oh, mean again, huh? (laughs) Let's keep going in this little, little, just in chapter 1. In verse 5, under apostolic authority, you're putting in order and appointing elders. Who do you think you are? Right? How about in verse 9, you're giving instruction not only in sound doctrine, but rebuking those who say anything contrary. Or how about verse 13, rebuking sharply. Or how about verse 16, concluding that some who even claim to be godly actually are, quote, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And we're just getting started in chapter 1. So where that kind of ministry must be done for the protection and promotion of the gospel, we would want people leading who are not naturally inclined to anger and arrogance and those kinds of things. I think it's fascinating to keep it in that kind of context. Hopefully it's not just fascinating. Hopefully it's, it's important and meant to be seen. I do remember talking to a person one time, and or a person I knew, that they, they were divisive. For years they were divisive. And so... As kind of an experiment, to be honest, I just came from a newcomer's class where we talked about the gospel. The room was packed out. People were super excited. I walked out of the room thinking, that was so awesome. I wish I could share this class experience with the whole church. This is what we're about. This is what we do. And then after the service, later on, I walked in the auditorium, and this person was talking to another person. I thought, I'm just going to try this out. I'm going to say, oh, I'm so glad to see you. It's kind of true. (laughs) 
because I wanted to share an experience. I had a class this morning. It was so awesome. It reminded me what we're about. And, you know, our focus isn't on ourselves and, and complaining and grumbling and being divisive. It's on Christ and what he's done. And it's so amazing. There are people hearing about this and they're so excited about this. It was amazing. And the person just looked at me and just started spewing divisive complaining. And to the other person. Not because I'm prone to anger or it comes naturally, I hope. But I had to say to the person, it seems to me as if you have the gift of complaining and that's not a spiritual gift and you need to stop it. Boy, I'm sure I came across as arrogant. I'm sure I came across as unloving, unkind, ungracious and quick-tempered. But there are places where you have to say, that's not acceptable. Now, if I always acted like that, then that wouldn't be acceptable. But if we're going to stay on task, on target, not lose sight of who we are and what we're called, who we're called to proclaim, we need to make sure we're able to do that. And we have leaders setting an example of that. I remember another occasion having to be involved in a, I think there, were more, there was more than one of us confronting someone for their sin, sin that's ruin, ruining their family, ruining their life. And we needed to be strong about it. And the response was, you're not being very nice. And I thought, you're right, we're not being very nice. We're just being biblical. But what we don't want is a bunch of mean boss people who are just trying to throw their weight around because, after all, the Bible calls us to confront sin. That's not what we're looking for either. Okay, I probably have belabored that enough. Told two illustrations I wasn't planning to tell. You'll remember the illustrations and not the passage. That's what, right? Verse 8. But hospitable, sharing, right? Sharing is the idea. Hospitable. A lover of good, as God defines good. How about that? You genuinely uh, are, are love good things. Self-controlled. Okay, fruit of the Spirit. That's in contrast to the drunkenness. That, that's, a, that's an unnatural action. You're controlled by drinking too much alcohol. Here, you're controlled by something unnatural. You're controlled by the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. But you're self-controlled. Upright. It's actually the word righteous. Or just, or fair. Could be law-abiding, because it's a law word. So, what was it again in the ESV? Upright. So you abide by God's law. You, you do what God says, generally speaking. That's the pattern of your life. Or it can also be in your action. You're fair. You're just. You're, you're, you're law-abiding. Even in what you call others to do. Both are true. Holy, which would be different, distinct. Distinct from the unbeliever where necessary. Unique, you stand out again, where necessary, and disciplined. 
He gave us that twice, really. Two different words used. But he had self-controlled, which is a disciplined word. And now we have discipline, another Greek word, but really getting at the same idea. You get the idea that it's important. There's got to be the ability to say no to what you would naturally like. Say no to sin. Say no to self. There's got to, got, there's got to be an ability to do that. And think about this. If, it, if you can't say no to every women desire that you have, it's going to be hard to say no to things that you're going to need to say in a leadership role. Because it might actually be thing, something that appeals to you. It might be tugging on your heart. But by conviction, you know what's right and what God has called you to under apostolic authority, under the authority of Christ. And so it's a great tester. Can this person, does this person have the ability to say no to things that they might sometimes want to say yes to? Did you notice so far that on the list you don't have anything about fundraising? There's nothing on the list so far about marketing. Nothing whatsoever about numbers and success in that sense. It's important that we think in those terms. What questions are you going to ask of someone who is an elder candidate? To be used of the Lord. What questions are you going to ask for a new senior pastor candidate who would be an elder? Not to be grumpy or complainy, but to be helpful. Now we get, in a sense, to the good stuff. We get to the, to, to the so what. Here's why. Here's why we want to know that this person is this kind of person. He must, in verse 9, hold firm, right? Clinging. He's not speaking literally because we don't literally hold firm to this. Although I like to hold my Bible tightly sometimes. Hold firm. It's, It's protection, right? You're going to protect the ball so somebody doesn't strip it out of your hand or you won't be able to hand it off to somebody else if you like that illustration protection hold he must hold firm to the trustworthy word or literally the the faithful word it's the faithful word because he's talking about the faithful christ he must hold firm to it as taught stewardship protection i've got to keep this safe so nobody can mess with it or mess it up this is how this person has to be The faithful word. It's the gospel word about the faithful one who is Christ. You've got to be able to protect it if you're going to lead. How can we promote something later? He's going to get to that, that we haven't protected. Especially, we're not going to get to it this morning, when he gets to the fact that there are those inside and outside the church who want to mess it up and get you off track. And so we want a leader and leaders who are going to hold firm, right? You, you, you can't pry my hands off it till I go to the grave kind of conviction. I'm going to hold firm to the faithful word, the gospel word, the gospel revelation, the truth about Jesus. It's just a great, intense kind of picture. It's hurting my hands doing it. It's like, oh. You, you love what is good so much so that you're going to protect what is good. 
stewardship, protection, everything necessary to not alter or compromise, to, to, to have it be kept. And then, don't miss this. I, I've never paid attention to this in my life, I don't think, I confess to you. He says, as taught. And in my notes today, it was worthy of three stars. As taught. Could also be translated, according to the teaching. Be a literal translation. According to the teaching, or the teaching. So you're going to hold on to protect not only the data about what Christ has done, follow me on this, but the interpretation regarding what Christ has done. So you're going to hold fast the faithful word, but you're going to hold fast the faithful word as taught, as explained, as given in doctrine. By those who've gone before you, Paul the Apostle, in this case, before him, Jesus. So it's not enough just to know the data. You've got to know the data, right? But a lot of times, people will say they've embraced the data of what Jesus did, and they come to all kinds of wacky interpretations of the data. I want to remind you and elders and future elders, Omaha Bible Church at large, to put things in order, you have to have leaders who are going to hold firm the gospel word, the gospel revelation, but it also, in addition, it is to be as taught, as explained, as explained by Paul and others. How about as, as explained by Jesus? We won't take the time to go there, but I want to make sure to remind you this morning that not only do we have the data in the Bible, which is vital, we have the interpretation of the data which is vital. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Oh. I didn't come to be the best example ever, though he was. I came to be a substitute and to give my life as a ransom to set people free who are sinners is the idea. See, that's interpreting the historic act. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just using three examples, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Oh, substitutionary atonement, substitutionary death for our rebellion, for our law-breaking. That's interpretation of the data. See, you've got as taught by Jesus, by Paul. Or how about John? Let's use another disciple. John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. That is so helpful. That's the as taught part. We're not good. It's not that we loved God and so he rewarded us. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to borrow from Paul again. 
It's not that we love God. He loved us and He gave His Son to be the ultimate example so everyone could reach heaven if they try hard enough. No! To be the propitiation for our sins. But that would mean God is angry. It would mean God is angry. That's why you need propitiation to satisfy His just anger. The list could go on, but I love this. I love this because it's clarifying. It's helpful. Let's cling to, let's hold to the faithful word as explained, as taught. Just a sampling. If we could just do that, man, the church would be a lot healthier. Eyewitness apostles not only see it, but they explain it because Jesus explained it. Okay, verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction. So that he may be able to give teaching. You know, he's received, now he's going to give. To give instruction in sound doctrine, literally healthy doctrine. Healthy teaching. Healthy because of the as-taught, healthy explanation. Let me explain to you what the Bible means when it describes Jesus rising from the dead. I can't do that unless I have held tightly to the as-taught, if you will. That sounds pretty arrogant. No, it sounds like humility if it's actual historic event as explained by Jesus and his apostles. Arrogance would be, I don't know what it means. What does it mean to you? How does it make you feel? What will draw a bigger crowd? No, 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 no. That's not what we want to do. I do like posing the question to verse 9. What do people need? And letting verse 9, the latter part, answer the question. What do people really need? Sound doctrine. That's what they need. They need healthy teaching. What do people really need? They they need to be helped. Healthy doctrine. What how about this? I'm not doing a very good job. One hour too little sleep, perhaps. Let's blame something else. People aren't healthy spiritually on their own. They need to be healthy. So we should love them and give them what will help them to be healthy. They need healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, healthy explaining of the as-taught explanation of things. That's what people need. People might not know that that's what they need. They I've got this need, and I've got this need, and I've got this need, and I've got this need. Well, we have our own hierarchy of needs, different than Maslow's. And maybe we can help them with their physical, and we can help them with some other things. But actually, at the very top, the very most important thing is, they need healthy doctrine. They need an explanation that explains what the cross means, and how it applies to them. See, now we're on target. If we have leaders helping us to to not veer from this road of always being 
the most loving, kind, gracious, relevant ministry ever because we're giving people what they need to be healthy, even if it's not what they're looking for. Verse 9 goes on to say, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's part of the protecting. It's a calling of, of, a, of a spiritual leader, of an elder. We've got to rebuke those who contradict it. We have to tell them that they're wrong. It's a pastoral responsibility. Probably will be accused of being mean, arrogant, unloving, unkind, quick-tempered, out of control, all of those kinds of things. But it's vital that that happen. I read a study not that long ago that said the number one thing people are looking for in a pastor is an open and affirming style. I'm so glad that you found what you're looking for. <laughs> I thought an open and affirming style. I kind of get it. I like being affirmed. I like it when people are nice to me and I like it when people are open and, and they make me feel good. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of things. Number one thing people are looking for the number one thing I'm looking for as a Christian and have been ever since I became a Christian is I want somebody to tell me the truth about Jesus so that I can have peace with God and have emotional peace as a result. Number one thing, just tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. Not from within you, but just tell me the truth from the Scripture. And really, I didn't know it, but all along I've been looking for somebody to tell me the truth as taught the right way. That's what I want from church. If I want to go hear a band, I can probably hear a better band than I hear at church. I didn't really mean that, musicians. If I want to see a magic show, I can see better magic than anybody at Omaha Bible Church can probably put on. If I want to have a, an emotional experience, I can... Last week was pretty emotional. Um, generally speaking, I can... Have it somewhere else better. All these things the church tries to do, we're probably not going to be the best at it. But we're called to be the best at what we're called to do, the thing that no one else has been called to do. And that is giving what's spiritually healthy to people, which has to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and explaining it to them the right way so that they might know God, so they might have peace with God, so they might grow in grace. So let's remember that. Let's be good at that. Soul-purposed at that. And to do so for the good of others and for the glory of God. Well, we need to be done. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Please make Omaha Bible Church a church that by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit is holding on to the sacred trust, which is none, nothing other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ the good news about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, doing all that he did for everyone who would ever believe in him so that they might be saved, so that they might be rescued, forgiven, ultimately glorified, perfected. Help us to be committed to those things by your grace. And not only that, help us to then be quick to speak these things as we go, as we go and talk to our friends, as we talk to our 
opponents, our enemies. Help us to open our mouths and, and speak clearly about Jesus in our own little Crete. For your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.